0: Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's April 16th, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today, we discuss chances to emerge from this crisis as a community centered in equity. And on this day, back in the day, Kendrick Lamar became the first rapper to win a Pulitzer. Whoever thought the greatest rapper would be from coincidence, get it all. You deserve it, Kendrick. Today on The Local, your Quick 6 headlines, Mike Marshall and Tony Vizzino from Oregon Recovers, and our interview with Tyler Tamir, CEO of Cascade AIDS Project.
1: The reality is that often conversations about equity are a lens that gets applied to whatever topic or issue that we're currently working on as an afterthought.
0: First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith. It's Thursday, April 16th. Governor Kate Brown won't release prisoners over COVID-19 concerns. The decision comes a day after Brown received the information about 2,836 inmates in the custody of the Oregon Department of Corrections. Those prisoners met the criteria for possible release. Inmates with approved residences, older and higher risk inmates, and those to be set to be released in the coming weeks and months. But Governor Kate Brown said she would take it on a case-by-case basis Inmates inside the state's 14 prisons are at higher risk for contracting COVID-19. Prisons are more than 95% full, and social distancing is extremely challenging. This amid a Guardian report of an inmate detailing alarming conditions at Two Rivers Correctional Facility in Umatilla County and the Mercury reporting about the lawsuit filed against the Department of Corrections. Your daily dose of data, the number confirmed cases in Oregon of COVID-19 rose by 33 to 1,663, and three more recorded deaths were now at 58. The new COVID-19 cases report include 10 in Multnomah County, 7 in Clackamas, 5 in Marion, 3 in Columbia, 2 each in Lane and Washington, 1 in Benton, Douglas, Lynn, and Umatilla counties. Who is hardest hit? Well, more than 100 long-term care facilities have confirmed or suspected COVID-19 cases. And per Rob Davis, the Oregonian Latino community is among the hardest hit. Last week, 18% of COVID cases in Oregon were being found among the Latino population. This week, it's 21%. A nod to the Northwest Health Foundation noting in Street Roots that while farm workers are considered essential workers, they don't receive the same benefits or protections. And by the way, shout out to Rob Davis of the Oregonian who recently won a Scripps Howard Award. His polluted by money piece detailed how unlimited campaign contributions in Oregon, his polluted by money piece detailed how unlimited campaign contributions in Oregon have undermined Oregon's environmental legacy. The streets are empty and people are speeding more than usual. Weekday traffic is down nearly 50% from levels last year, but excessive speeding on open roads has increased dramatically. For example, average speeds on I-5 going north during what used to be rush hour in the afternoon were up to 60 miles an hour. That means the average is above the speed limit. Back during the first week of March, they were around 30 miles an hour. What's your hurry? Got another Zoom call? Metro's ballot initiative supporting homeless services has some traction. A measure slated for May looking to raise about $250 million a year for homeless services has some polling strength among voters. The measure would enact a 1% marginal income tax for the region's wealthiest residents and businesses. Of those polled 57%, they'd vote yes. 39% said no, 4% said I don't know yet. Note that ballot measure consultants typically like ballot measures to start with at upwards of 60% support, because getting to no is often easier than getting to yes. So political watchers have an eye out for what organized opposition might invest. Rich Vile, the former Republican legislator, is going to run for secretary of state as a non-affiliated candidate. After serving the legislature, Rich Vile served as deputy secretary of state, was presumed to be a leading candidate for the Republican nomination. Right now, 34% of Oregon voters aren't currently affiliated with any party. That's a higher percentage than the Republican party has. And very close to the percentage of voters registered as Democrat. By the way, in our state, independent is a party. That's why I didn't say he's running as an independent because he's independent of that. Other candidates for Secretary of State include Shamia Fagan, Jamie McLeod Skinner and Mark Haas, running as Democrats, and Kim Thatcher, running as a Republican. And from the Department of Jim Halpert and other beautiful humans, Roosevelt High School students are delivering groceries to seniors for free. The call service takes calls between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m., promises to deliver to homes within 72 hours, they wear masks and gloves, and they can make no contact deliveries. And Lincoln High School junior Ella Ramos-O'Neill, a computer science student, and Ranjani Krishnan, a 3D design teacher, have been working together to design, prototype, test, print, and assemble face shields for healthcare workers in Oregon. At noon going forward, TriMet and Amtrak are going to sound their horns to honor transportation workers, and all of us at 7 p.m. can sound our own barbaric yawp to thank all of the frontline workers. And in some non-pandemic good news, apples, previously thought to be extinct, have been found right here in River City. Well, at least in the Pacific Northwest. The Lost Apple Project is a real thing. It's a team of retirees that scours the remote ravines and windswept plains of the Pacific Northwest for long forgotten pioneer orchards. And they now have rediscovered 10 apple varieties that were believed to be extinct. The largest number they've ever unearthed in a single season. One researcher said they are lucky to find two or three a year. 10 is unprecedented. How you like them apples? And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith and you're listening to The Local. Now, Emily Gilliland speaks with Mike Marshall and Tony Vizina from Oregon Recovers. Mike and Tony share the resources that are available for those in addiction recovery and opportunities to make Oregon the recovery state.
2: Let's start with some facts. According to Oregon Recovers, Oregon ranks 50th in the nation in providing access to addiction treatment. Five Oregonians die each day due to alcohol and we lose one Oregonian each day to drug overdose. There's also a significant financial impact. Addiction costs Oregon taxpayers $5.9 billion annually. We are joined by Mike Marshall, Executive Director of Oregon Recovers, and Tony Vizina, Executive Director of Fourth Dimension Recovery Center and Vice Chair of Oregon Recovers, Together, they can share their perspectives on COVID-19 impacts on the community living with addiction and in recovery. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Tony. Morning,
3: Emily. Hey, what's up, Emily? Hey, what's up, Mike? Hey, Tony.
2: Mike, let's start with you. What is Oregon Recovers?
4: Yeah, Emily, thanks so much for uh, shining a light on this this morning. Oregon Recovers is a coalition of people in recovery like Tony and I Um, our friends and family, and then the people that work in the recovery field who are severely underpaid, but they're 24-7 to help us recover. And and we came together three or four years ago to deal with the statistics you read, which is we have the third highest addiction rate in the country, and we rank last in access to treatment. And as a result, we have uh, too many kids in foster care and an overwhelmed foster care system. We have too many young people incarcerated, three-quarters of the young guys out at McLaren, um, correctional facility were drunk or high when they committed the crime they're in there for. You know, we have a homeless problem, have a high school graduation rate problem. So we came together to organize as a uh, movement, as a force in the state to um, uh, call for and advocate for and, and push for implementation of a whole new continuum of care from prevention to a new form of intervention in someone's addiction that it doesn't involve the police or the sheriff. Um, Uh, treatment on demand. It's crazy. You have to wait three or four weeks to get into a treatment center (coughs) under the best case scenarios, unless you have lots of money. And lastly, post-treatment recovery support. Tony's, you know, in recovery six years. I'm in recovery 12 years. We both work on a recovery on a daily basis, and we know from the Surgeon General that uh, if we keep someone in recovery for five years, their chance of relapse goes down to 15 percent. So, that we, as taxpayers, we should be investing in people staying in recovery, and we 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 barely do that. And so we came together to advocate for systems change, cultural change, and to build a movement of people in recovery.
2: Mm. Folks talk a lot about getting back to a new normal, and for many people, that's not good enough. We don't want to go backwards. Right. We want to go forwards. Um, and there's opportunity in this moment to fix a lot of things that are broken. Tony, do you have a sense of of ways that your work is going to change forever for the better because of this uh, pandemic?
3: Um, I mean, you know, potentially we we might do some, yeah, this could develop some infrastructure around uh, telephonic recovery checkups, about coordinating efforts between systems, um, about helping develop a centralized system for people to access addiction treatment and recovery supports so you know while Oregon is pretty uh, you know liberal and progressive in a lot of areas it kind of is problematic to addiction recovery in a way because as we decriminalize addiction and the criminal justice system becomes less of an instrument to intervene on people's lives and get them to re- into recovery we're not building another system right now uh, at the state so what does a new system look like that's recovery centered meaning people in recovery are, are primarily driving it that is focused heavily on outreach and engagement and treats people with with dignity so where is the new system where a place like 4D or the Alano Club, these recovery centers, where they have like a fleet of outreach workers and a myriad of outreach techniques, including social media marketing to drive people towards recovery. And when people make the choice that I wanna get into recovery, how can they easily call somebody that, or access a statewide directory of recovery resources that makes it easy for them to navigate? For, for instance, right now, if I wanted to get into recovery and let's say I don't have insurance, how do I start my journey, you know? Where do I go? What website do I go to if I do have insurance? What website do I go to that gives me a list of treatment providers in my area that have openings? That doesn't exist right now. Hmm. Why isn't there social media marketing coming out of the Oregon Health Authority where people are scrolling down Facebook saying, hey, do you think you have a problem with drugs and alcohol? Would you like help? Click here." You know, those things don't exist right now. Why isn't there people just going out, doing direct outreach on the Springwater Trail, handing out information saying, hey, you know, would you like to resolve a drug use problem? If so, call me and we'll start your journey. Those things don't exist, but potentially they could after uh, COVID-19 if we work on developing that infrastructure now.
2: Mm. Mike, what does it look like for Oregon to be the recovery state?
4: Well, in the context of what might come out of this crisis, I'm still uh, slightly pessimistic. Uh, I mm-hmm. will say two things have happened. Number one, I think there is more of a conversation within OHA about how uh, recovery needs to be prioritized in terms of investments. We haven't actually seen those investments, but I know those conversations are being provoked in large part by people like like Tony and myself, um, no, number one. Number two, uh, with, within the legislature, there is an increasing understanding of recovery and an increasing understanding of how 20 years of public investment in the alcohol industry has had huge consequences in terms of human lives. You, you said it yourself, we lose five people a day in alcohol-related deaths. But then the, the subsequent cost of that re- relative to our health care system, our criminal justice system, our child protective service system, like it's completely out of whack. And Um, uh, you know at the beginning of this the olcc moved quickly to increase access to alcohol by uh liberalizing home delivery of beer and wine uh uh, they moved the hours back from uh it was the nine o'clock uh nine o'clock nine p.m turn up cut off they pushed it to 230 in an effort to increase alcohol sales Mm. you know and, and what we did was said hey look legislators and policymakers. There's a whole bunch of people in recovery who all of a sudden don't have their recovery support system, and now you're going to make it easier for them at their most vulnerable moments of, like, eleven, twelve, one o'clock in the morning to get alcohol delivered to their doorstep. What crisis was ever improved by increasing the uh the, the level of alcohol involved it, it it was completely out of whack and the, the public health people were not being communicated with by the liquor uh control commission staff and i think that's changing there's a recognition that every decision relative to access to alcohol needs to be through uh somewhat through a, l- a lens of public health mm-hmm. um because uh, we were able to stop them from home delivery of cocktails which was an idea that they were promoting mm-hmm. um in the long term uh I'm I'm not as optimistic as Tony. Uh you know, in normal years this would be the start of the governor's budget cycle for 2021, which is we have worked over 3 years to build consensus around what a new continuum of care should look like and that we would move to get it funded in the 2021 session. Now, you know, uh who knows what's going to happen in this session. We have no sense of what's going to happen and I know that Those budget decisions are happening right now, but because the Oregon Health Authority is so consumed with uh, uh, the COVID-19 experience, I heard from the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission yesterday that they're not providing them the data they need to make submissions to the governor by Friday, which is the first deadline for her 2021 budget. Mm -hmm. That's not ironclad. That doesn't mean that we can't subsequently do it through the legislature. But the point is, is that the, the systems change that we believe is necessary and that we've worked hard for over the last three years is really at risk right now because of this uh, crisis and people not knowing. Uh, once again, because the stigma of addiction, it's going to be really easy to cut the, uh, the existing infrastructure to move those, mo- those money into things that are more politically palatable. Um, but we're going to pay a higher cost uh, in terms of taxpayers in criminal justice costs and social service costs and all of those things.
2: Mm. Mike, what resources should our listeners know about?
4: Okay, so the first is org. That's a website we put up the day the governor issued stay-at-home order. There they can people can find out um, uh, what meetings are online. Uh, there's a tab on how to access peers, like the peers that work for Tony's great organization, 4D. Um, there are helpful hints on there in terms of are you a person in recovery? What's self-care look like? Do you know someone in recovery? How can you support them right now? That's really, really important. Um, uh, and then uh, look at um, uh, Fourth Dimension Recovery Center's website. Um, if folks are in other parts of the state, down in Jackson County, there's the Recovery Cafe. They do amazing work. Um, there's uh, Bay Area First Step down in Coos Bay. Uh, uh, that has uh, great access to peers. Um, so uh, if you're looking for resources, if you're looking for information, whether it's about what treatment beds might be available versus uh, how to access an AA meeting, um, go to OregonRecoveryNetwork.org. Um, if you want to talk to a peer and you're here in the Tri-County area, uh, uh, look at Fourth Dimensions' uh, website, and
3: there's a whole list of peers you can reach out to.
2: And, Tony, what's that website for Fourth Dimension Recovery Center?
3: Uh, it's uh, www.4drecovery.org. And, and in addition, people could check out um, Mental Health uh, and Addiction Association of Oregon, uh, Bridges to Change, and the Alano Club of Oregon. They all have good recovery support stuff going
2: on. Excellent. Mike and Tony, thank you so much for joining us this morning. <laughs>
3: Absolutely. Thanks,
2: yeah, thank Emily. you so much.
3: Have a great day. You too. Take
2: care. A- Again, that's Mike Marshall, Executive Director, and Tony Vizina, Vice Chair of Oregon Recovers. Tony is also the Executive Director of Fourth Dimension Recovery Center. We appreciate them joining us on X-Ray. More information is at OregonRecovers.org or OregonRecoveryNetwork.org.
0: Next up is our interview with Tyler Tamir, CEO of Cascade AIDS Project. Tyler shares what Cap has been facing over the last month, where he's finding some hope and the importance of centering racial equity in our covid nineteen response.
2: Thanks for being with us, Tyler.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Emily.
2: Glad that you are back, and we have some more time to talk. So last week, we sort of walked through some of the some of the decisions that cap has has had to make really difficult decisions in the last month to continue to do the work that you do for folks in the community around housing and health care. Anything that's changed in the last week? Oh,
1: you know, I think we all wish that um, things had changed in the last week. Um, we're holding on hope for what um, tomorrow might look like. Um, but in the in the big picture, we are holding on um, strong to many of the things we talked about last week, continuing to provide vital services to our community. Um, I would like to take two seconds to shout out to my amazing team of folks who are working across Oregon and Southwest Washington to ensure that those who are living with and affected by HIV and those who need access to culturally affirming healthcare continue to have those services. Um, we and our community partners, along with healthcare workers on the front line, um, are each and every day uh, coming into work to make sure that our community can stay healthy, and we appreciate the rest of the community that's staying home so that we can stay a little bit safer as we do our jobs.
2: Do you all have enough supplies to do the work that you do on a regular basis?
1: Uh, You know, it's a day-by-day task. Um, We did just post on all of our social media sites and our website a call for the community to help us make some masks. So we know that um, N95 masks are really important to be turned in for hospital workers that are working on the front lines to save uh, and to protect those who are hospitalized with COVID-19. But the movement to make cloth masks Um, is vitally important for those of us that are still out in the community every day. Mm -hmm. Um, So if folks are at home and looking for something to put their creative talents to work, um, CAP is accepting cloth masks for all of our workers who continue to see our clients in the community.
2: That's good to know. Glad that we can share that opportunity with our listeners. I'm sure many will be wanting to, to help with that. Um, We started to talk about testing last week, and and your organization is doing testing for existing clients. I have some really basic questions for you. Where do those tests come from?
1: (laughs) It's a great question. Um, You know, we have a a relationship with a lab, Quest Laboratories, in town in a normal time. Mm -hmm. Um, And for a while, I think the supply was... Very limited and it continues to be, Um, but we are able to get through our um, direct relationship with our lab partner a certain number of tests um, each month. At first, that was pretty limited. I think we, when we first got tests, they were able to give us nine tests and at that point we were trying to make a difficult decision about whether there was an equitable way to decide who would get those nine tests or if we had an ethical obligation to hand those tests over to a larger system that could put them into their mix. Fortunately we were able to get more PPE through Multnomah County um, and we were able to get more tests in order to ramp up our efforts.
2: And then where do the when once you utilize the tests where are they sent to?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So our tests are sent back to um, Quest Laboratory, and then in partnership with the state, um, those tests are reviewed. Uh, So it takes anywhere from, in theory, three to seven days to get a result back, although we've been seeing the result times take a lot longer coming back from the state.
2: And yesterday, the governor announced a framework for reopening the economy. Many people were waiting with bated breath for some sort of timeline (laughs) for us to know when this is going to change and when the next step is for us to get back to a new normal. As you looked at the governor's announcement yesterday and this new framework, was there anything that was missing?
1: Yeah, you know, um, first, I think um, the... The reality is that these are incredibly unprecedented unprecedented times, that the decisions that elected officials and community leaders like myself have to make come with an enormous amount of responsibility and weight. Um, I have been up with many sleepless nights over the last several weeks as I've tried to figure out how to navigate my own landscape, and so I can only imagine the magnitude of weight that the governor feels as she begins to make large decisions about how we start to return to the organ that people once knew. Um, I think when I looked at the governor's order, where I felt like something was missing was an explicit conversation about equity. Um, I think that there needs to be critical discussions right now about racial equity and what Progress in addressing COVID-19 looks like through a racial justice framework. And I don't think that we can have successful conversations about what it means to relax social distancing or relaunch our economy in the future unless we're having dialogues about what it means to return to a more equitable Oregon. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really like having this conversation about returning to normal because the reality is that the normal that we once had uh, prior to COVID-19 was a broken and inequitable system.
2: Mm. So often folks pay to lip service to the idea of racial equity. So yesterday she could have talked about a framework and mentioned it. What are some of the the touch points, the benchmarks that we should be looking for and, and demanding as a community to make sure that we we do address racial equity that it isn't just words in a in a press press conference but that there is actual action taken to not only have a go backwards but to move forward so that the the huge chasms of, of lack of services lack of basic respect racism systemic injustice stops and that we have a new day for everybody in the state
1: a great question. I think um, the reality is that often conversations about equity uh, are a lens that gets applied to whatever topic um, that we current topic or issue that we're currently working on as an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Um, and what needs to happen is a shift to finding ways to ensure that equity is woven into. All decisions that we are making as a society when we look at conditions like poverty or addiction or mental health or economic injustice or the racism and discrimination that are faced by people from the LGBTQ community or who are black and brown these are all things that fuel epidemics in our nation and right here in Oregon um, and in order to begin to address those, we need to understand them. We need to have difficult, uncomfortable conversations about racism. And during times of pandemic, we need to be collecting the appropriate data so that we understand the impact, the disproportionate impact that epidemics often have on communities of color and people who have traditionally been furthest from opportunity you know, as a, as a black man myself living in Portland, um, it's a very real concern every day when I leave my home. And I say that coming from a place of privilege from being a light-skinned person of color. I've been followed in grocery stores by security guards, and I've been asked by police where or why I was at a certain place or time. Um, and I know that for many in our community, that is a very real experience. And so when decisions are made about how we reopen society, it's not only about um, the, the safety of the general population, but it's about understanding how those decisions may disproportionately impact others. I have to make a decision when I leave my home about whether I am even safe to wear a hoodie on a normal day, um, but in times of pandemic, I have to decide can I put a mask on my face when I'm walking in the community and I have to weigh my safety in that moment over the reality that I might expose myself to a virus that is uh, coming through our community at the same time if I choose not to wear that mask.
2: I just have to sit with that for a moment because I don't think that everyone realizes how, you know, on a normal day, that feels, but also how, how exacerbated and, intensi- and intensified that experience is in these, in these times. So from a, from a statewide perspective, there needs to be a focus on racial equity. It needs to be discussed. It needs to be highlighted. Uh, more voices need to be in the decision-making process. We need to be looking at data. We need to disaggregate data and to show the disparities that are happening across the state there are any other steps that you think it's important for the governor or other leaders to be taking right now to make sure that racial equity is centered in the decision-making that, that is happening as we move forward?
1: Yeah, I think one of the most important things that can happen in discussions about equity is a validation of the past. Mm. Um, I think that we all um, hopefully recognize that Oregon doesn't have um, a pretty picture when you look back at our history in the way that it has treated marginalized community, especially those from black and brown communities, Mm -hmm. and to move forward in conversations about equity and to to build a framework that not only allows us to return uh, to what most folks consider uh, the normal, but to return to a more equitable Oregon Mm -hmm. requires us to acknowledge the history that got us to this place, the inequities that exist in our society and to begin to have those difficult conversations that validate the lived experiences of Oregonians who have faced discrimination and racism for a variety of social factors, Mm -hmm. Uh, to be able to hold space for that as we move forward, uh, and then to use data to make decisions that will create a vision for addressing those inequities in our communities through every issue that arises coming forward. Mm -hmm. Um, We have an opportunity, despite everything that's happening around us, I believe that we have an opportunity to truly build a framework for a more equitable Oregon. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe that that means that people in elected positions, including our governor, need to figure out what it means to lead with race. Mm
2: -hmm. Where do you find hope?
1: You know, I find hope on the shoulders of the generations of black and brown people that fought and won plagues before us, Mm. on the long-term survivors that each and every day um, tell me the stories of the early days of the HIV epidemic and make me proud to be the CEO of Cascade AIDS Project. And each and every day from my friends, my family, and from my staff, who are exhausted and tirelessly working to ensure that those who need us the most have access to the services that they need. Mm. Um, You know, I think each morning I wake up exhausted and my hope comes from the love and the compassion that I see in this community that I know could exist on a larger scale if we just invest some time, love, and have some difficult conversations about the future. Mm.
2: How can our listeners best support your work, Tyler?
1: I think um, what we're hearing every day is uh, stay home, (laughs) help us stay healthy, Uh, wash your hands. I know that those are messages we're we're getting tired of hearing and that we're restless and want to return to society. But do those things. And to help Cascade AIDS Project, you can visit capnw.org and we have a variety of ways that you can help us out by making a donation to our community action fund or by helping us make masks or a variety of other things that you can do from the health and safety of your couch. So we hope that you'll visit our website and figure out how you can connect with the great work of CAP and Prism Health.
2: Tyler Tamir, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Again, you can find out more information on Cascade Aids Project at capnw.org. That's Tyler Tamir, CEO.
0: Thank you to Mike, to Emily and Tony and Tyler for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. If you want to go to the best of Portland, Willamette Week is hosting, you could nominate The Local as best podcast. We'd sure appreciate it. You can also write us a review, give us a five-star rating. And if you have story ideas, if you have happy news, Send us an email at the local at x-ray.fm. I'm Jefferson Smith. Talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy.